This week, we know UV causes melanoma to form. Now scientists show it encourages the deadly skin cancer to spread. The inflammation that's induced by UV radiation in the surrounding tissue is actually initiating the spread. And one physicist gets the surprise of his life when sifting through some archives. But there was this one uh, sentence that really had me nearly falling off my chair and, and I literally thought I was seeing things. We hear about Einstein's lost manuscript. Plus, we look at how scientists have used crystallography to probe deep beneath the surface of the Earth. This is The Nature Podcast for February the 27th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. Melanomas are the deadliest type of skin cancer. Each year in the UK alone, there are almost 13,000 new cases diagnosed, and more than 2,000 people die from the disease. It's known that exposure to UV radiation from sunlight can cause melanoma to develop by making mutations in the DNA of skin cells. But in this week's Nature, a team report that UV has another dangerous effect. It can cause the cancer to spread. The researchers simulated sunburn in mice that already had melanomas. After just a handful of cases of sunburn, the cancer had spread to other organs, including the lung. The UV light sparks inflammation in the skin, which leads to an influx of immune cells called neutrophils. These neutrophils secrete molecules that attract the melanoma cells to blood vessels, which they ride to other parts of the body. Marion Turner spoke with lead author Thomas Tooting from the University Hospital in Bonn. Melanoma is uh, cancer of the pigment cells and uh, it uh, appears particularly in fair-skinned uh, people. It is the most deadliest form of skin cancer because it can uh, seed metastases and, and that can kill people. So metastases are when a cancer spreads from its original site to another place in the body, is that right? Correct. And I think lots of people are aware that too much exposure to sunlight can cause skin cancers. Can you tell me what you've now found that's different? So there's a, a lot of evidence that UV irradiation uh, is associated with, with melanoma development. And what people have always thought is that, that UV light is uh, actually causing mutations in the genomes of the pigment cells. So they cause changes that then cause cancers. But people have also felt that UV irradiation also indirectly promotes uh, um, melanoma by causing inflammation and changing the, the environment in the skin. And that's what we found. We found that in addition to causing um, damage directly to pigment cells, we found that the inflammation that's induced by UV irradiation in the surrounding tissue is actually um, initiating the spread uh, um, of of melanoma cells, uh, and and the fascinating thing is that that we observed that this spread uh, mostly occurs along uh, blood vessel walls, actually the outside of blood vessel walls. So the UV is somehow attracting the melanoma cells to the blood vessels. What UV radiation is doing, it's it's actually causing an inflammatory response, um, which is predominated by uh, certain types of immune cells, uh, particularly. Uh, neutrophil granulocytes, which actually are important for fighting infections. And these neutrophil granulocytes um, somehow pave the way for the melanoma cells to get to the blood vessels and to maybe uh, um, enhance their, their motility, their movement along these blood vessel surfaces. All induced by the UV itself. Might some of this spread of the cancer cells actually happen before a person even knows that they have a melanoma? 
exactly this issue is discussed in the field. So um, for one thing, uh, people always thought that metastases happen late in tumor development, but there's more and more evidence that these um, metastatic seeding of cells can happen very early also in other types of cancers. And what we found could be a potential mechanism. You did your experiments in, in mice so far. Is there any evidence yet that UV exposure causes cancer spread in humans? That is, of course, a more difficult issue. Um, There's no direct evidence. Um, What our work is important for, though, is that there's evidence in humans that um, an inflammatory response with neutrophils, especially when melanomas are superficially um, uh, ulcerated, um, is um, associated with um, exactly this uh, spread of melanoma cells along blood vessels and with an increased risk of metastasis. And whether that actually is uh, in patients increased by UV radiation is, I think, something that is very difficult to grasp. But our work would predict that sunburns, intermittent sunburns, would promote this uh, process. So it could be that other things that lead to inflammation, not just UV, also promote the spread of cancers. Absolutely. This is one of the issues that has always been discussed in the field. Um, How important are changes inside the tumor cells and how important are cells in the surrounding, in the microenvironment, as people say. Um, And we believe that it it is the crosstalk between both. So um, particularly aggressive cancer cells actually talk to their environment and cause an inflammatory response uh, and catalyzes the metastatic spread. UV irradiation is is then uh, just one interference that promotes and further enhances this process. So is there anything, any action that we can take with these findings other than just encouraging people not to sunbake too much? Well, what, what we hope is that these insights provide, or also the methods and models that we have developed provide uh, a possibility to actually study the exact mechanisms how melanoma cells do this and how inflammation is actually contributing to metastasis. And it would provide a new opportunity for therapeutic intervention. But there are no treatments in the clinic currently yet. There are many ideas in some clinical trials that stop inflammatory uh, molecules that, that actually participate in acute inflammation be it via a sunburn or via other causes. That was Thomas Tooting talking to Marion Turner. There's a news and views article on the research. To read it and to read the paper, go to nature.com slash nature. Still to come, how to make muscles using your sewing kit. That's in the research highlights. But first... 2014 is the year of crystallography, so we've been hearing a lot about how the technique is used to determine the structure of proteins in our bodies. But what you may not realise is that X-ray crystallography is also used to probe the deep earth. Imagine the earth as an onion. If you cut it in half, you'd see three layers, the crust, the mantle and the core. The crust is the layer we live on, but it forms less than 1% of our planet. Go below and you'll get to the mantle, where temperature and pressure begin to rise. Dig a lot deeper and you reach the core, where temperatures are unimaginably high, higher than the melting point of steel, in fact. To study what happens to minerals in these extreme conditions, scientists recreate them in the lab, and they use X-ray crystallography to see how the extreme temperatures and pressures alter the mineral's structure. In this week's Nature, Thomas Duffy from Princeton University recounts how much crystallography has revealed about the deep earth and how it promises a new era of discovery. 
Thomas told me how the journey to our planet's center began. Well, you can really go back um, basically 100 years ago to father and son team of physicists, the Braggs, who were the first to solve the crystal structures of minerals using the newly developed technique of X-ray diffraction. And they were the first to use this new technique of crystallography or X-ray diffraction to unravel the arrangement of atoms. Over the succeeding decades, scientists developed techniques to enable them to unravel the structures of more complex minerals, including many of the silicate minerals which are common in the crust. How did they go beyond the crust, though, to test the minerals we'd see deep beneath the surface? So it became necessary to go into the laboratory and actually subject minerals to the high pressure and temperature conditions of the deep earth and then measure their arrangement of atoms using crystallography. This was an effort that was carried out over many decades, and it really took off in the late 1950s and early 1960s with the development of a device known as the diamond anvil cell. And first, they started at pressures of the upper mantle, which is the highest pressures that they could reach, and they identified a large number of phase transitions where a structure transforms from one form to another by application of high pressure and temperature. In particular, the mineral olivine is a common mineral of the earth, and we believe it's the main mineral of the upper mantle. This mineral olivine undergoes a series of phase transitions with increasing pressure, and these were mapped out over the subsequent decades. And finally, in the, in the 1970s, a final phase transformation in olivine, which produced a mineral now known as magnesium silicate perovskite, was discovered. And this mineral is very important uh, because it's believed to be the dominant phase in the Earth's deep mantle. And how difficult is it to recreate the extremely high temperatures and pressures that we see in the deep earth to crystallise the structures of minerals like perovskite? The diamond anvil cell is the device that is the most widely used. And in this device, what you're doing is you're taking a small piece of a, of a mineral or whatever sample you're interested in looking at, and you're squeezing it between two gem-quality diamonds. It's actually a very simple, elegant device. I can hold it in my hand, and yet the pressure in this device is, is greater than the pressure at the core mantle boundary. And at, at the same time, uh, diamonds transparent. While your sample is at very high pressure, you can look at it, and you can send x-rays through the diamonds and interrogate your sample while it's at very, very high pressures. And so this device which enables you to achieve very high pressure while still being able to use crystallographic methods on your sample has been the whole key to unraveling all the structures in the deep earth. And not only do you need high pressure, but you need high temperature too. So to achieve that, we can send a laser through the diamond. In this case, we typically use an infrared laser and we uh, heat the sample with that laser. The sample will absorb the infrared radiation and heat up, and we can heat it up to temperatures of thousands of Kelvin or thousands of degrees while the sample is at very high pressure. There's been a lot of controversy and questions about what's happening at the core mantle boundary. Can you tell us about that? So the core mantle boundary area is a region of about 200 kilometers thick above the Earth's uh, core, that's long been very mysterious seismically. It's got very unusual properties. For instance, seismic waves in different directions travel with with different velocities in this region. And it was clear that there was some sort of a a discontinuity in seismic waves here. But for, for a long time, we really didn't know what was going on. And that story all changed suddenly 10 years ago in 2004 
perovskite, the main mineral of the lower mantle, was found in laboratory experiments to transform to a new phase, right at the pressure where this core mantle boundary region is. And this new phase um, is known as post-perovskite because it comes after perovskite. And it has a quite different structure from perovskite in many ways. It's more of a layered structure. And that can explain some of the anomalous seismic features of this region. It can explain the, the existence of a discontinuity at the top of the core mantle boundary region. And it can also likely explain, although the final experiments to demonstrate this have not yet been performed, it can li likely explain the variation of seismic wave velocities with direction. And this region is likely to be a very important region for understanding the overall dynamics of the Earth. It may actually be a holdover from the Earth's early formation, a piece of the original primitive Earth that has been retained for the past 4.5 billion years. So we've come a long way in these 100 years since the Bragg's experiments um, up to this post-perovskite discovery. What's next? What do you foresee crystallography telling us about in years to come? The core itself is an area where we still have relatively little information. In particular, the Earth's inner core is sort of the next frontier for application of crystallographic study. It's got a lot of properties we don't understand. It has some layered structure, but we don't really understand what the source of that layering is. It actually has differences in properties between the eastern and western hemisphere, and that is also not, not at all understood as to what is causing those properties. The problem, though, is that the inner core is really high pressure and temperature, so we really have to extend our pressure and gen temperature generating capacity to a much higher level while retaining the ability to make crystallographic measurements, and that's a huge challenge. That was Thomas Duffy at Princeton University. Apologies for the poor quality phone line. You can read Thomas's comment piece at nature.com nature. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Why did the bear cross the road? To get to the other side, of course, but also to mate with other bears. Roads connect human populations, but they can separate wildlife, reducing breeding opportunities. Researchers studied grizzly bears and black bears in Canada's Banff National Park. The park has animal crossings along a 45-kilometre stretch of highway that cuts through it. The team used barbed wire traps to snag hair from crossing bears and compared the DNA of these bears with that of other bear populations. They found a healthy amount of genetic exchange between populations on either side of the road, the first evidence of gene flow at these crossings. That paper is in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Fancy hanging by a thread? Strong but fake muscles made from sewing thread or fishing line could allow you to do just that. Artificial muscle fibres are needed for robotics and prosthetic limbs. Now, a US-based team have wound fibres made from cheap nylon or polyethylene into coiled muscles. A tightly wound bunch of polyethylene fibres can lift loads a hundred times heavier than the same weight of human muscle can manage. The team says the muscles could one day be used in clever temperature-sensing clothing. When things hot up, the artificial muscles contract and open pores. Read more in the journal Science.
It's not long until Chief News Editor David Ray joins me for the news chat. But before that, in 1931, a famous physicist scribbled some equations on a scratch pad. But that bit of paper was lost and forgotten until last year. Here's Nature reporter Davide Kaslavecki. The Big Bang Theory is now well entrenched in science and even in popular culture. But it hasn't always been this way. It took scientists a while to accept the idea of a cosmic beginning. The first evidence for it emerged in the 1920s when Edwin Hubble and other astronomers discovered that the universe was expanding. They observed faraway galaxies running away from us in all directions. But as late as the 1950s, some eminent researchers still opposed the notion of a Big Bang. The most famous of these scientists was British astronomer Fred Hoyle. Although his universe was expanding, just like the one in the Big Bang Theory, in Hoyle's model, there is no initial explosion. The expansion has been going on forever, and it will go on forever. According to Hoyle, as galaxies run away from each other, the growing space in between doesn't stay empty. Instead, new matter slowly appears out of the emptiness to form new galaxies. So even though Hoyle's universe is in constant motion and rebirth, its overall appearance never changes. This is what physicists call a steady state, and Hoyle's model became known as the steady-state universe. But Hoyle wasn't the first person to think of this type of scenario. It turns out that another scientist had had a very similar idea 20 years before him. That scientist was none other than Albert Einstein. Cormac O'Rafferty, a physicist at the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland, discovered this in an Einstein manuscript. I came across this draft of, of a model, and it was supposed to be a draft of this 1931 published paper, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized, although my German isn't that good, it, it simply couldn't be. It was something slightly different. It started off the same and then went in a very different direction indeed. It had been classified as a draft of a paper that Einstein published in 1931. Instead, it was work that Einstein did in that same year, but never published. That manuscript had been hiding in plain sight at the Albert Einstein archives, which are based in Jerusalem. And O'Rafferty was able to read it on the archives website. There was this one uh, sentence that really had me nearly falling off my chair. And the sentence was, Die Dichte ist also konstant und bestimmt die Expansion which even in my schoolboy German I could understand as the density remains constant and determines the expansion, and and I literally thought I was seeing things. As it turns out, Einstein's attempt to create a steady-state universe contained an error. The little model he tries, he actually makes a mistake, so he gets a very interesting answer, but the answer is wrong because he simply makes a numerical error, the sort of error anybody would make. It's not trivial. He's going from the field equations to develop some differential equations, and he stumbles, and he ends up with a a universe of constant density. But we think he realizes the mistake because you can see in the manuscript in heavy pen he goes over it again and realizes that actually the type of model he's trying, it leads to a null solution. So he sees that the second time, there's no question, and he kind of abandons the manuscript. There is no record that Einstein ever mentioned this attempt to anyone afterwards, let alone to Hoyle. In fact, it is unclear if Einstein and Hoyle ever met in person. What is known, though, is that Einstein was not a fan of Hoyle's model. Eventually, the steady-state theory was ruled out by astronomers 
who showed that billions of years ago, the universe looked very different to today. And then in the 1960s, the discovery of radiation left over from the Big Bang essentially sealed the deal for the theory. Today, the Big Bang theory remains an accepted part of cosmology. So what significance does Einstein's lost manuscript have for science? It's not going to change our view of the universe in any big way. But I think if I'd found it 10 years ago, it would have been less interesting. It just happens a lot of these questions are sort of very much in the news in cosmology now because the discovery of dark energy just recently raises questions yet again about what is causing the expansion in the first place. So I think this manuscript will be of interest to a lot of people. That was Cormac O'Rafferty from the Waterford Institute of Technology in Ireland. O'Rafferty and his team report their discovery in a paper that's now under review at the European Physical Journal. For more on the story, you can read Davide's news piece at nature.com news. More news now, and joining me in the studio is Chief News Editor David Ray. Hi, David. Hi, Theo. First up, a story about fish. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so I think it's a big move in in laboratories towards using zebrafish as uh, as animal models. I think because as, as mammals get more controversial by the day, there's millions of them used across the world each each day in labs. Unfortunately, those fish have to be destroyed after they've used up their useful purpose. And a commonly used anaesthetic, which is used to overdose the fish and kill them, has now been found in two studies to be possibly not the most humane way of killing these fish. Okay, and we're talking about zebrafish. How useful and how commonly used are they within science? Well, I mean, millions are used across the world. We don't have exact figures about how many are used. I think in in the UK they would be, for example, the second most common uh, lab animal that's uh, used for for tests. Um, And in in Canada, actually, they could even be the, the, the top animal that's used. So who's been arguing that this method isn't the most humane way of discarding these fish? Well, there's a lot of controversy in, in how to dispatch uh, lab animals after, once they've been used. And uh, the studies have been done in, in this particular time on zebrafish. And a couple of studies have found that for the version testing, that the commonly used anaesthetic, which is called MS-222, is possibly you know, more than distressing to the fish than, than possible alternatives. So how do they know that it's distressing to these fish? Yeah, well, these aversion tests are quite interesting. They're interesting. They've been used in, uh, in, in other lab animals before, but essentially one of the tests, for example, puts the fish without any anaesthetic in, in a tank, and half of that tank is dark and half of it is light. And several fish are tropical fish, so they tend to move towards the, the, the daylight side of the tank. But if you put in some of this anaesthetic, then they tend to move towards the dark side. So as in, if so, if you put the anaesthetic in, in the light side, they will move towards the dark side. And this shows that they actually prefer something they otherwise wouldn't like more than they do st- staying in the, in the side with the anaesthetic. So that kind of indicates that obviously this anaesthetic is distressing to them. And you may think, yep, yeah, that would be the case with any nasty chemical that you put into a tank, but it's not necessarily that or always that way. So what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives are other anaesthetics, other medicines to um, to do the same job as MS-222 would do. And there's also, um, in the States, a particularly common method is to cool the fish down quite quickly, and that obviously kills them as well. That's actually illegal in the UK um, for, for a number of different reasons, but one that it's ice possibly damages the fish's tissue before they die, and therefore it causes them pain. Um, so, yeah, the, the study, these studies in particular looked at anaesthetic alternatives, medicines that cost about the same as, as uh, MS-222 does. Are these alternatives likely to be more expensive? Will labs be likely to want to take them up? 
Well, this is the thing. I mean, things, the studies that they did on some of the anaesthetics were very similar costs and in some cases actually cheaper. Clove oil, for example, is actually cheaper than MS-222 so, and also easily readily available. So labs could quite easily make this switch. It's a case of you know whether they want to and then putting in the systems to change supply, supply lines and things to get these um, anaesthetics into the lab as easily as they have done in the past. Okay, and moving from fish to flu, the avian flu virus. Yeah, so I think it's hard to keep up sometimes with these um, H and N numbers, but we're talking specifically this week about H7N9, which has been uh, in China for about the last year since the first human cases were discovered. It's about 30% mortality rate in humans. It's a nasty, nasty bug. So it's only been found in China so far. There's been about 300 cases in the last year. And it's now knocking on the door of Vietnam. It's been found for the first time on a province in China, which is on the Vietnamese border. And how do we think the virus has ended up on this border? Well, it's been a sort of outbreak. The big outbreak last year um, came from poultry farms. And uh, that's obviously the source of the close handling of, uh, of poultry animals. Um, the, the, that caused a spike last year. And by shutting down the, um, a lot of the markets, uh, live poultry markets in the, the provinces where the uh, H7N9 existed, they managed to close down that outbreak. But it's since since the new year has uh, has come back again in quite a big way. And because of the Chinese new year, there's been a reluctance to shut the markets because obviously there's enormous commercial interest in keeping them open. So they think that that's possibly why there's been a resurgence this year. And also while the, the spread across the states, uh, the provinces that it's in, is similar, but is also now the extent has bleached further north and south. And how well is Vietnam set up to respond to this looming virus crisis? Actually, quite well, more, more better than you'd have thought, because I think about uh, 10 years ago, Vietnam had a nasty experience with the uh, another different type of uh, avian flu. And in the last 10 years, has been working to make sure that that experience, in which I think about 60 or so people died, doesn't happen again. So with the, the news that uh, H7N9 has been resurgent in China, they've been working hard behind the scenes to put in 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 place measures to, to you know, handle a possible outbreak. Is this likely to spread beyond Asia to become a global problem? It's a good question. I think it, so far, not so. Obviously, it's still only been found in China. It's not even been found in Vietnam yet. And other uh, examples of the disease being found outside of China have been one-off cases of, of Chinese people going overseas. So I think at the moment, the risk is quite low. And especially with sort of some of the measures that Vietnam's put in place, it, they should stay that way. But unfortunately, with avian flu, there's always the potential that it could, um, could jump borders. Thanks, David. To read those stories and more, go to nature.com slash news. Remember, if you'd like to tell us what you think, drop us a line on podcast at nature.com or if Twitter is more your thing, chat to us at Nature Podcast. That's it from me this week. Next week, Kerry visits a farm to discover the track to sustainable livestock. I'm Thea Cunningham. <laughs> <laughs>